Well, for our time then this evening, let us return to Acts chapter 7. And I'm not going to isolate one particular verse or a passage. Instead, we will consider the whole chapter. The title for our meditation tonight is Stephen on Trial. Stephen on Trial. What is Stephen doing here? Why is he here? Well, uh, some weeks ago we looked at a portion of chapter 6, and Stephen was facing some serious charges. They might not seem much to us today in our society and in our culture, but 2,000 years ago, in a Jewish culture, these charges were extremely serious. And chapter 6, verse 13, we are told, people set up false witnesses which said, this man, that Stephen, ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Therefore, Stephen was accused of speaking against the temple and the law of God, the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And verse 14 goes on to say, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So basically there was at least three things leveled against Stephen that he had to defend himself against. He was charged with speaking against the temple. And of course, the temple in those days represented the presence of God. It was indeed a sacred place as far as the Jews were concerned. And he was accused of speaking against the law of God and the one through whom the law was given. That was Moses, who was the great leader in the Old Testament. So that's why he's here, and he's before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin had an immense amount of power in Jerusalem and in Israel. And they were exercising their power when they called him to give account and to answer these charges. And what he does basically in this, the bulk of this chapter is he gives a very concise and precise account of the history of the nation from the time of Abraham until the time of David and Solomon. That's basically what he does. Abraham is from verses 2 to 8. Joseph, the Joseph era, from verses 9 to 16. Moses era, from 17 to 44. And we might say in verse 45, there's a reference there to Joshua. Verse 45, for instance, which says, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus. That's just another name for Joshua. That's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, he finishes off with the David and the Solomon era from verses 46 to 50. So what's he saying in these verses then? This long address. In fact, it's the longest address that we find in the book of Acts. 
Well, as we sought to highlight in the introduction, he is seeking to defend himself. Serious charges have been laid against him. And he's using the history of Israel to refute these charges, to basically say he's not guilty. And he uses these five individuals or five eras in the history of Israel to prove that he is not guilty of the charges as presented. Look at Abraham, for instance. Abraham was, what was he? He was an idolater. And he lived in Ur of the Chaldees in modern Turkey. That's where he lived. And God spoke to him. God called him away from the land of his birthplace and told him to go to a place that God would later reveal unto him. Well, what do we find? There at Ur of the Chaldees, God appeared to Abraham. There was no temple there, but God appeared to Abraham. And Abraham heard the call of God and answered it. And ultimately, we know he went into the promised land, although he did not possess the promised land. All he possessed actually was a bedding place. Now, there's something interesting there. He had the promise. The land was his, and it would be given to his seed. This was the great promise that was given to Abraham. It was a land and a seed. But that promise was never fulfilled to Abraham, apart from the fact that he bought a place where he might bury his wife, Sarah. And in at that time when God was dealing with Abraham, he revealed to Abraham that his seed would go into captivity and they would be ill-treated for a period of over 400 years. We, we know the text says here, 400 years. Well, simply uh, Stephen was just using round figures. We know the ox of time was 430 years. But God had revealed this to Abraham. And at the appointed time, they would come out. And that's exactly what happened. God uh, saw Moses. Moses was an unusual, beautiful child. And God had reserved him for this great work of bringing the people of, Egypt, uh, people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses was in Pharaoh's house. What about him? Well, he was raised as an Egyptian. He knew all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was familiar with the Egyptian court and the Egyptian lifestyle. One day he went out and he saw his brethren. Two of them, well, one was being mistreated by an Egyptian. And Moses stood in and defended the Hebrew and killed the Egyptian. And the next day, what happened? Well, he went out and he saw two Israelites striving together, and he tried to reconcile them. And one of them pushed him away and says, we won't have you to be a rule and to be a governor over us. Are you going to do to me what you did to the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses then recognized that what he had done was, was known, and therefore he fled. And he went to Midian for 40 years until God met him by the burning bush. And what did he say to him? Take off your shoes from off your feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. There was no temple there. God was there with Moses, but there was no temple. 
And of course, we know what happened. Moses went back, and the people who had once rejected him now accepted him. The one whom they cast aside, who made thee ruler and judge over us, they recognized on the second time that he was the one whom God had sent in order to deliver them out of the land of bondage and to bring them into the, the promised land. But before that time, I've skipped a, a spot, but before that time there was Joseph. The twelve patriarchs came into existence and they were jealous of Joseph. And you know his story. They rejected him. And he went into slavery. Ultimately he was promoted. And he became the second in charge of Egypt. Promoted to great honor and wealth and wisdom. He was the ruler virtually of that kingdom. And he had been set there in order that he might prepare for that famine that was to come, that famine that would affect Egypt and the surrounding lands. And the patriarchs in Canaan, they were hungry. And Jacob the father sent his sons to get some corn. And on the second occasion, when they met Joseph, Joseph revealed himself to them. And there was someone else. Here was someone else whom the patriarchs had rejected the first time, but the second time they accepted him and they realized that he was the one that God had sent in order to provide deliverance for them. Then Moses, as we've already highlighted, and then Joshua. Joshua, verse 45, was the one who took them into the promised land. And then there was David and Solomon. It was under the reign of David and Solomon that Israel consolidated, and they became a great nation. But what happened to David? David was one who was rejected to some extent before he was finally accepted by the people. So he uses the potted history of Israel. And what he is saying basically there, that all throughout the history of Israel, the people have always rejected the ones whom God has appointed in order to do things. The ones whom God has chosen, when the people came across that individual, what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected Moses, they rejected Joseph, and to some extent, they rejected David also. Well, as he was going through all of this potted history, it seems too that when he came to verse 51, what we find here in our chapter, verse 51, it's as if he had given his account, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and he's outlining his case. And he's come to this point then, as he looks upon them, it would seem, we cannot be certain, but it would, it would seem as if he has realized he's hitting a brick wall here. He's getting nowhere. You see, these people would agree with everything that he has said. 
the history that he has outlined, they would agree with it. But they didn't see that they were doing exactly the same as their forefathers had done. They did it concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great Messiah, the one who has been sent from the Father above, the one who has come to suffer and die in the room and in their place. And what did they do? What did the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day do? They rejected him. What did their, their forefathers do with all the prophets? They rejected them. What did their forefathers do with Moses, the one that they revere today? They rejected him. And basically what he is saying to them is, you are just like your fathers. There's no difference. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So did ye. He then turns on them. Stephen is here and he's having to defend himself. He is the accused, but actually by the end of this, he is the accuser. He is accusing them of doing exactly the same as their forefathers did. Now, when he gives this potted history, these four individuals that I've mentioned that he's highlighted, what is he stressing? Well, he's stressing above all things that God is not confined to a building. God was not confined to a building that he himself had honored. He will not be confined to the four walls of any building that any people make for him. Solomon acknowledges this when he offered his prayer of dedication when the temple was opened. And Isaiah mentions this in Isaiah chapter 66, I do believe, and verse 48 is, is a quote from that. Howbeit the, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? These people were thinking because they had some holy structure that indeed God had blessed and God had visited with them, that God was somehow going to be confined to that building. No, all throughout the history of Israel, God was with his people. He was with Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. He was with Abraham in all his wanderings. He was with the patriarchs. He was with Jacob. He was with Joseph. Joseph was in prison in a slum, but God was with him. And Joseph, when he rose to be the second in command in Egypt, God was with him. The God of Israel, the God of Isaac and of Jacob was with him. And the same could be said for Israel all throughout their troubled history. Wherever they were, when they had the tabernacle, God was with them. And when they erected the wonderful temple, God was with them. Now, at this particular point in the history of Israel, they were in a temple that had been rebuilt. 
Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians because of the people's idolatry. And this is the point that he wants them to understand and to see. You cannot confine God to buildings. No. Our God is a God that moves. Our God is a God that you cannot contain. And he goes where the people are. And he will be a God to them. And therefore, he is in no sense decrying or belittling the temple. Instead, he's putting it in its correct perspective. Because when Jesus said he would destroy this temple and raise it again in three days, he was referring to the temple of his body. Yes, that temple would be destroyed. And in AD 70, it was destroyed again. But the new temple, the Christian temple, is not buildings, it's not cathedrals, it's not abbeys, and it's not monasteries or what any, any other kind of religious building. It is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and Christians are in that body. This is what he wants to impress upon them. The days for the special buildings are gone. Oh, it's nice to have a building where you can meet that has been set apart for the public worship of God. That's good. But friends, we do not confine ourselves or our God to this building or any other building. You cannot confine God who is a, a blessed, almighty spirit. Impossible. There's another thing we need to draw from this account here. And surely it is this. One can know historical facts, but be ignorant of what these facts teach. As we have said earlier, as he was going through this account of the life of the nation of Israel, you would find none of the scribes and the Pharisees would find fault with what he said. You can just imagine, they will be nodding their heads. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. But when he came to the application, they had no idea, no sense of this at all. When he would call them, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, they would wonder, where did he get this from? How can he apply this to us? We are the teachers of the law. We are the religious people. We sit in the seat of Moses. How can he possibly come to this conclusion? This is why they stopped their ears. Because all these historical facts, there would be no dispute. But the application, they didn't understand their part in this. That they were ones who always resisted the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did. This is the very history of Israel, always, always, always rejecting when God moves and works. Well, maybe, friends, there may be some of us here who fall into the same category. We know the historical facts. We are well versed in our Old Testaments. We most certainly know the New Testament. 
we know a lot about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not ignorant about these things. And maybe if a Jehovah Witness or a, or a Mormon came to our door and they tried to entice us uh, into following them, and when they begin to start speaking about the Lord Jesus, about the person work of Christ, we would quickly be able to identify that they are talking uh, contrary to the Word of God. But friends, has our knowledge, has all our information, has it led us to a saving knowledge of Christ? You see, by nature, we are ones who always resist the Holy Ghost. We always resist God and his moving and his working. The history of Israel is the history, if you like, of every single individual by nature. We resist the gospel. We resist the claims of Christ. We resist his overtures. This is what happens to us because of sin. We don't like to be confronted with the reality. This is what happened here. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the wisdom of God, was not afraid or ashamed to point out their error. The accused became the accuser. They failed to learn the real lessons from the history of Israel. And maybe this is where we find ourselves this evening. They failed to see what God was saying to them in these events. And maybe God is speaking to you this evening, causing you to think, why do you resist Christ? Why do you resist the claims of Christ that he has upon your life? Why is it? You will not come to him. The one whom God has approved, it seems ridiculous, but that's the truth. The one whom God has approved and demonstrated by signs and wonders and wonderful things. And of course, the ultimate sign is the resurrection of Christ himself. And yet, even after that, these people are still rejecting Jesus Christ. And they are, in effect, saying, we will not have this man to reign over them. All throughout their history, they have rejected the God-sent deliverers, the ones who have met with God's approval. They have rejected, and now they're going to do exactly the same. Well, what about you this evening? Are you going to follow in the footsteps of the scribes and the Pharisees, the members of the Sanhedrin, ones who their minds would be full of the Word of God, yet they did not know it in an experimental sense. They didn't really know the truth of it. They were ones who were uncircumcised in heart and in ears, they would have known the, the literal, the physical circumcision. They would have been circumcised on the eighth day. But what does circumcision point to? What does it point to? 
It points to those who are cut in heart and cut in the ears in the sense that their heart is broken when they begin to realize their sin and their need of the Savior, and their ears are cut in the sense that they hear the voice of the living God speaking to them through the Word of God. But no, they were close to this. They were ones who would not tolerate this at all. With all the religion, there was no saving. There was no closing in with Christ. And Stephen, therefore, he becomes the accuser, and they would not have this. They closed their ears. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. I don't know if you've noticed, but the long address begins virtually in verse 2 there, the God of glory. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. And there towards the end of the address, verse 56, for instance, or 55, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. There, what did he see? The glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. We are told in the Bible that Jesus sits on the right hand of God. But here we find him standing. And what does that signify? What is it telling us? Well, surely it's telling us this. Here was Stephen, alone. No one to defend himself but himself. And he stands before this hostile audience. And he gives an account. And what does he do? He stands up for Jesus. He lays his colors to the mast. He's not afraid of the opposition. He doesn't know what the outcome will be, but he knows he's facing a very severe charge. And under the law of Moses, the charge of blasphemy, if to be found guilty, was to be stoned. And he would have known that. But he stood up, and he spoke up, and he sided with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we could say, here was Jesus standing up, about to welcome the first Christian martyr into heaven. After all, didn't Stephen stand up for Jesus? And the Lord Jesus Christ stood up for him. And Stephen saw this. He saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And this again was to infuriate his accusers. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. This is the last time that the Son of Man is used in the book of Luke, in the book of Acts. It's the last time it's used, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they went out, stoned him to death. How brutal. The first Christian martyr. 
Well, this was a very significant event, friends, because by what he did here and by what happened, there was now going to be a great chasm between Judaism and Christianity. There was, in some respects, before this, there was some kind of acceptance, and I use that word very loosely, between Judaism and Christianity. There was some kind of acceptance, but this time, this incident brought it to an end. Christianity now was going to be completely separated from Judaism. And from this time, the gospel was going to go away from Jerusalem, and it was initially going to go on to Samaria, and then to the Gentiles. This was truly a, a change in the life of the church. Because as you'll see when we come to chapter 8, a great persecution fell upon the church and the people began to leave Jerusalem. And this was God moving the church on, onto Samaria and then ultimately onto the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. And we're told here in verse 58, and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. And he will refer to this incident later on. It's obvious it had a profound effect upon him to see this young man full of the Holy Ghost, with wisdom, being able to defend himself and becoming the first Christian martyr. Well, the likelihood is that none of us will become a Christian martyr. It's possible, of course. But the likelihood is this will not happen. But don't think for one minute that it doesn't happen. It does happen. According to one, the amount of Christian martyrs in the 20th century was over 26 million. Now, we know nothing of this in our country and in the Western world, but there are many people who do know. And just because it doesn't happen to us doesn't mean to say it doesn't happen. Over 26 million Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ were martyrs, lost their lives because of their allegiance to Christ. This reminds us, friends, that we're not easy believers, or we don't believe in easy believism. The Scriptures make it clear. Jesus makes it clear to us that when we follow him, we're to love him above all. And we're to count the cost. Stephen counted the cost and paid the ultimate price. But as a result of what he did, the church grew, the church prospered, 
God was with them. Even in this tragedy that affected the early Christian church. He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here was, here was Stephen following in the footsteps of his Savior, giving his life. And as a result, the church grew and the church prospered. Stephen on trial. I wonder how you would do on trial. I wonder how I would do in trial. If we're honest with ourselves, we should ask these questions. How would we do if we were to give account and if we stood before a hostile audience? Would we remain true to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, friends, if we're walking close with Christ, he will be with us. He will give us the energy, the strength, the courage to fight the good fight and to give a good witness on that day as Stephen did on his trial. Amen.